Hello, friends. Welcome to the Coffee and Deer podcast. I'm your host, Nick Pinizzato, here with the doctor, Mr. Mike Groman. Today, we're going to be talking trail cameras with Paul Anir of Cuddyback. Paul's a big-time hunter, and he loves talking trail camera strategy, so he is uh, really an ideal person to have on here today, so looking forward to that. And believe it or not, Mike, it is getting to be that time of year. It's time to to start getting your cameras out there. Some people already have. And as is the case every year at this time, I feel like I'm woefully behind. Well, I was until we actually spoke with Paul because he got me motivated to pull out all my cameras and update firmware and clean terminals and organize and format and label SD cards. So if you would have spoken to me before, Paul, I would have been woefully behind. Post Paul, I'm ready to go. My guess is is that a lot of people after they listen to this show are going to be the same way because I know I was certainly fired up and a little more uh, getting my mind in that process of moving forward here. Now I do a good job of putting all my cameras away at the end of a season and cleaning them up, so that's good. Firmware updates, I probably should check on that. But the big thing I was thinking about, and I'm kind of horrified as I think about it, and that is the annual lithium battery purchase. And I'm a little nervous about what the cost of batteries are right now. Uh, And so, I don't know, have you ventured out into the treacherous waters of uh, the cost of batteries? I have, I have, um, but I've been parsing it out since turkey season. If I walk by and if I see a pack, I'll just, and I have a little extra money in my wallet, I just pick them up. So I've been um, hoarding, if you will, almost like toilet paper during the pandemic. So I think I'm probably really close to being maxed out for the season all right well that's a better strategy than me i feel like i'm just taking all my pain at one time so anyway yeah we're going to look forward to having the conversation with paul and getting ready to start focusing really on what is a fast approaching fall hunting season so looking forward to that show sponsor today is bass pro shops and they bass pro shops has been a sponsor of nda for a long time and also in addition to being a marketing sponsor so we do some unique things with them in terms of getting the word out about uh, nda and also uh, bass pro shops they also uh, through their outdoor fund we also have a grant from them right now doing some forestry work and so whenever you check out at a bass pro shops or a cabela's and they say would you like to round up for conservation That's where that money goes. So it goes to support the NDA and many other conservation groups. So always say yes, please. (laughs) When you're you're going through the checkout aisle, it makes a difference. And also, this is timely because I literally just last night landed from Springfield, Missouri in our national board meeting, which we had out at Bass uh, Bass Pro Shops headquarters uh, this week, which was great. It was just a wonderful place to, to have everybody have our board together. And you also have to see uh, the Johnny Morris Wonders of Wildlife Museum and Aquarium also in Springfield. Uh, It's the second time now that I've been through it. It is incredible on a hundred different levels. As I was telling board members that hadn't seen it yet, they're saying, oh, I'm looking forward to going in there. And I said, well, I said, use your imagination and then multiply that by about 10. And that's what you're about to experience. So uh, it's a really amazing place. And also because the big bass pro shops retail stores attached to all of this of course i went in and spent some money mike and i did finally i needed a new release for my compound bow and i ended up going with a thumb style release trying to change it up a little bit here so uh, that's a big change for me 
It is. And I was also indirectly involved in Bass Pro Shop. I placed an order just a couple of days ago myself. And yes, I did round up for conservation. So I had to uh, pick up some bear, bear spray. Mine had expired. And when I scout in New York, I mean, you know, being a resident from Pennsylvania and, and then going to New York, having a camp there and scouting uh, in Pennsylvania, I always carry a handgun with me when I scout just for multiple reasons. And in New York, I can't do that. So I make sure that when I scout, I have bear spray. And so I ordered mine from Bass Pro Shops and I rounded up for conservation. So not as cool as the, would you call it the, the world of no, wild, it's the Johnny Morris. Of, yeah. This is the Johnny Morris wonders of wildlife museum and aquarium wonders of wildlife museum and aquarium. Okay. That's a mouthful, but sounds like it's uh, it was well worth the, the trip. Yeah. We, we usually shorten it and call it the wow museum, but for our our listeners here who may not be aware of it, I wanted to make sure to, yes, it is definitely a mouthful. Uh, and also, uh, let's see, Ask NDA Anything. Next episode is the Ask NDA Anything. And um, yeah, we got, got some, we got some NDA hats to give away if we get a good question. I also came back with a couple goodies from Bass Pro Shops. So I've got a Bass Pro Shops hat that I could give away and some other things. So please get your questions in and be eligible for a prize. I'd love to get your questions. A couple other things I want to mention here. Uh, recent NDA articles that are out there. These are things I want to bring to your attention. Uh, if you don't get our newsletter, and I'll hit you up on this again as we close the show, but um, they're in there. And they're also on our website and also Quality Whitetails. The summer issue is currently being printed. Some members will be getting that soon. But a few things I wanted to point out. Uh, a couple of these are actually by me. So I have pitched in and helped contribute to our vault of information. Uh, one of them is an article titled, I bought deer hunting land in a CWD zone. It was a good decision. That one's by me. Check that one out. That's on the website. Uh, also a video, it's titled, Improve Your Soil with This Summer Food Plot. That is by me, it, talking about the buckwheat plots that I've planted. Uh, that is on our YouTube. You can find it on our website, but it's also on our YouTube channel. So go check that out. Our de uh, most recent Deer Season 365 podcast the title of that one was Sedentary versus Mobile Bucks with Luke Resop of Michigan State University Deer Lab. That's a cool one. I always feel like every buck I'm after is sedentary and I never see it. So that's always my excuse. Uh, so be sure to check out uh, our, our man, Brian Grossman, who's the host of the Deer Season 365 podcast. Check out the recent episode there. And this is also from Brian Grossman. It just came out in yesterday's newsletter. What I learned from my first season saddle hunting. And Mike, you and I are... Yeah, I don't know if we're new saddle hunters anymore, but we certainly have talked about it here on the show. And if you're starting out, I know we had tons of questions, and I think this article will help get you rolling. So are we still new saddle hunters, Mike, or are we seasoned veterans at this point? I'd have to say, I mean, I think we're seasoned veterans for sure, because I know you have hunted the majority of your past two seasons out of the saddle. I have exclusively hunted the past two seasons out of the saddle rifle late season. It doesn't matter. I have, I've went full in because it's just, there's so many benefits. I just, I, I don't see a lot of drawbacks. And so I continue to grab that as my first choice. Yeah. I mean, other than a few fixed position stands that I have on my place that are just easy and quick to get into. Yeah. I'm, I've been mostly saddle hunting. And um, so check that article out. Just, we could, again, we've had shows on the past talking about this. So we could do it again. 
With that, let's go ahead and start talking trail cameras. Let's go ahead and bring in our guest, Mr. Paul Anier, and get ready to get excited, folks. I have a feeling you're going to be dusting off the cameras and, and going and making that big battery purchase that we talked about. So let's go ahead and talk to Paul Anier. Here joins us on the Coffee and Deer podcast. Paul is the account manager at Non-Typical Inc. Probably more familiar to you all listening is Cuddyback. Uh, he's a freelance writer and photographer for several outdoor entities. He also has actually been a police officer at one time, so he's got a unique background. Yeah, but most importantly, he's a big-time hunter and a trail cam guru. And when I reached out to Paul and said, hey, we'd love to have you on the show to talk trail cameras, he immediately said, hey, are we going to be talking strategy? Because I'm all in on that. I want to talk strategy and, and uh, all the cool things about trail cameras. So he is the perfect guy for the show today. So, Paul, thanks for being on. And why don't you take it away and fill in the gaps there? Thanks, Nick. I really appreciate having me on. Yeah, I was, uh, I'm always excited to talk about trail cameras, a huge passion of mine. Um, so, yeah, like you said, I, I do work for Cuddy Back Trail Cameras. So, obviously, I'm I'm pretty, uh, you know, waist deep up to my neck and, and trail cameras. We, uh, we tend to run a lot here on the office. Um, yeah, I, I, gosh, I started running trail cameras probably Well, my dad got his first one, 2005, 2006, something like that. You know, the old film cameras, white flash, of course. And I still, I still run a couple white flash cameras, but, um, you know, the first time I had an experience with trail cameras, I would say it was summer of 2009. Um, checked a trail camera just put it up in kind of a random trail um expecting some deer certainly but you know i checked that sd card and it it essentially um it changed kind of my my life really um now working for a trail camera company quite a few years later down the road but when i checked that sd card i mean i can tell you where i was sitting i was sitting in my parents house it was a super warm day um it was, I sat down and looked at some of those pictures and some of the bucks that I saw on the camera. I mean, you know, of course they got my attention, but they weren't anything giant. They were probably 110, 115 inch deer. But back then I was, uh, what, 19, 20 years old. And it really, it essentially changed my life and changed my, you know, hunting career, if you want to call it that. Um, so that's kind of my first trail camera experience. And then, you know, the advent of cellular cameras, that's, that's just taken over the industry, of course. And we all, kind of know where that's going but um yeah i mean i'm just a hardcore trail camera user got a bunch of cameras out already this year super exciting just to you know check on herd health um watch the bucks grow um, i'm in a pretty heavy cwd area in southwest wisconsin where my property's at so we're always kind of monitoring for things like that um and trail cameras are just plain fun mike i gotta i gotta go to you here because we were both laughing as, as paul was telling the story it's like you know, a lot of people tell you, oh, I remember when I was and my wife said we were going to have our first child or, you know, that type of thing. But Paul's like, I can tell you where I was and I looked at my first trail camera picture. I'd say we got a guy that's into trail cameras here. I know. Well, he was talking about checking his first SD card. I can tell you where I was and where my camera was actually. Actually, I'm sorry, I'm lying <laughs> to you. It's not a camera where my trail timer, which was technically like a digital watch with a 
piece of thread uh, was across the trail. And I was so excited to check that. And I saw that little white thread, you know, wisped along the trail going in one direction, like a deer walk through here going that way. And that's all the information I had, but I was so excited. I really get where Paul's coming from. And he, we've also all dated ourselves here. You know, Paul's like this young, good looking guy, you know, and then there's us two old wrinkled up guys that are talking about trail timers. So uh, anyway, we've got quite the diversity going here on the show, but I love it. That's a great story. Where, uh, where do you live, Paul? I currently Wisconsin? live just south of Green Bay, Wisconsin. Um, I was born and raised in Richland County, Wisconsin and Southwest Wisconsin is about 55, 60 miles west of Madison. Uh, my parents, they currently live on the property that I grew up on. Um, they've owned it since, gosh, I think 1985. And so that's the property that I still help them manage and do, do all my main hunting on. Uh, it's just under 120 acres. So it's a good spread. It's split by a road. So it hunts a little bit bigger. And if anybody listening is familiar with the driftless area, it's, um, you know, it can hunt bigger than what a property really is. I mean, if somebody owns a 40 and it's just a big ridge, I mean, it's, you, you got corners, you can hunt around the side of a ridge, you can hunt a big bench and be hidden from another hillside where you think they might be bedding. So, I mean, it's, it's a pretty good spread. Um, it's, I mean, there's some really, really good land in Southwest Wisconsin. I wouldn't say it's, uh, you know, my piece is prime, prime, but it's, I mean, it's really good hunting. I can't complain. And it's, it's fun to be able to go back and, you know, do some fishing in the, in the streams there. And then, you know, obviously run cameras and hunt whitetails. That's my main passion. Well, that's certainly a beautiful area in the world that I've been through. And you're also, you have the benefit of being around some really nice deer and uh, Wisconsin is a gigantic, gigantic deer hunting state. So uh, you've been blessed that way for sure. Uh, you touched on it, but let's dig a little bit deeper into your personal your personal trail camera history. Um, so the first time you went out and you purchased a camera for yourself, I mean, do you remember what it was? And was it a film camera? Was it digital? Yeah, gosh, the first camera I purchased for myself, I don't even remember really what brand it was, but um, yeah, it was it was an SD, you know, it was a digital camera for sure that took an SD card. My dad had a couple old film cameras. And I think he actually sold them at a garage sale, oddly enough, um, back in like 2012 or 2013. And they were still, you know, somebody bought them at five or 10 bucks. But um, yeah, I mean, once I started running trail cameras, it was, you know, I was kind of in college, so I didn't have a lot of money to just go out and purchase a bunch myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember pulling SD cards and, you know, I got really impatient with pulling cards and it's, you know, now that cellular cameras you know take up just a majority of the trail camera industry nobody really don't have to worry about that anymore i mean put in some lithium batteries or get a battery backup booster on cameras and you know you set them out in july you're good to go all the way through the rifle season in most cases but yeah i mean i immediately i guess became kind of addicted to cameras like most of us i mean it's you know the information you can get from from running a trail camera throughout the summer months and see that transition into fall after they shed velvet and some bucks of course disappear. And, um, you know, I think that's, we'll get into it, I'm sure, but that's one of the main things that I've picked up on from running cameras is just that transitional behavior from season to season throughout the summer and the fall months. You know, it's funny. I'm, as I got a bunch of cameras out this past weekend, I'm already thinking in my head, um, what dominant buck is going to show up in the area and kind of occupy the space that historical the kind of alpha dogs have taken in the past. You know, I, I've going on, 
you know, whatever buck shows up, that's going to be a really nice one. This will be the fourth deer that my guess is I'm going to get him on camera and he's going to occupy the space that the mature buck kind of takes over in this area. My brother shot at a nice, I think it was four or five year old last year, you know, in the one forties, just a really good solid deer. And he lived on an area that was the same exact home range as two kind of alpha dog bucks had taken in the past. And, you know, I could kind of tell where, where that buck was going to be and what kind of space he was going to occupy. It's right off a big food plot next to a neighbor that doesn't hunt much at all. Um, so I think they like the seclusion of that. And so, you know, this will be the fourth, whatever deer shows up, it'll be the fourth deer. Um, that's going to be kind of the big dog back in this, uh, in this Valley and food plot Ridge area. That's, I think he's going to take over that area and probably occupy the same home range as historical deer have in the past. And I think that's just one of the main things I love about trail cameras is just learning, you know, the habits and tendencies of deer. And of course, being able to piece together all the information, um, you know, one of the most important things I think getting, it's one thing to get the trail camera information. It's another to, be able to decipher that info, use it usefully and, and be able to, you know, kill deer from that information. A lot of times we, we get the pictures and we don't know what to do with it, but, you know, being able to decipher that information is critical, obviously. So you touched on a number of things that I want to get into a little more deeply here and uh, down the road. Uh, one of the things you said at the end, especially, and I think this is something that I don't want to say it's lost, but it's not as talked about when we talk about trail cameras, and that is how much you can learn with them out there, because obviously we can't sit outside and watch and observe the deer in person. And so all the little subtle things like you have recognized areas on your property that that a mature buck will, will essentially take over, make it his range, and when that one's gone, the next one comes in. Like that's the type of stuff that you thought might be happening out there, but now you've got some, some picture and video evidence of it. And that's just one of the many different things you can do with it. You mentioned also monitoring the health of your herd and whether or not you have a deer that looks sick and you're in a CWD zone. So that's another uh, uh, great thing you can do with cameras. Uh, but what about in terms of how much in a year do you use them? Are you the guy that has your cameras out pretty much all year long? Do you ever pull them in? And what would you recommend there? Yeah, I tend to keep mine out probably eight to nine months out of the year all uh you know now that i'm you know working for cuddyback obviously i love running trail cameras and i i seem to get them out a little sooner every year but you know as soon as deer start growing antlers is kind of when i like to to get them out um you know a lot of people in the past it used to be kind of july or august and then you know you got all your your fleet of cameras out um you know as far as a suggestion i don't you know i, I think it depends on what your goal is and how you want to use them i mean i'm checking on herd health i'm checking on antler growth fawns um predators and whatnot luckily i don't have a lot of predators that deer deal with in my area but um yeah so i mean i'd say nine months out of the year i'm running cameras for sure and i i try some unique setups um in the driftless area we have a lot of rock outcroppings that tend to form like a cave underneath and under the rock and so i'll i'll set some uh, cameras over those to catch uh you know fox and coyote and whatever else might be coming up to that den so that's kind of fun um get on mainly uh, you know i'd say a lot of my cameras are on mock scrapes right now and that's a year-round strategy for me um i know jeff sturgis kind of popularized the mock vine scrapes and i've kind of followed in his uh, footsteps there putting those up on my property and it's just it's been a game changer for 
um, checking on deer, herd health, and, you know, you're getting a lot of pictures of does and fawns and obviously bucks stopping at those branches. And that's, you know, year round, they come up and hit those licking branches. It's obviously just a couple months out of the year that they're actually scraping, but, um, you know, it's just such an easy, cheap and effective way to, to check on deer, you know, essentially 365 days out of the year. Well, I'll add really quickly is that it's, it's something that's very useful in states where you actually want to actually get a, a nice breakdown of your herd and herd dynamics when you can't put out a specific feed source to do a deer survey or a population survey. And I do use that in, in New York because in New York, we can't put out any type of uh, mineral supplement bait or feed uh, just to minimize the risk of deer passing on diseases. So uh, very useful that way. So you're very right in that aspect. Yeah, I agree. I can't, I can't do, do any of that either, Mike. And it's honestly, I think it could be more effective and getting pictures, you know, it's such a natural thing. I mean, yeah, a historical salt lick is going to get a lot of pictures too, even if you're not putting, putting down salt and refreshing it, but yeah, those mock scrapes, I've just had amazing luck with them. They're a, it's an awesome tool. Not only are you going to get a lot of pictures at those, we'll call, we'll just call them baited sites, baited camera sites. You're going to get raccoons. You're going to get anything. Uh, you're going to get anything and everything that's coming in and using that site squirrels. And so I'm always, when I see people's photos with that source, I ask myself, yeah, I wish, wonder if they are aware of, you know, you don't have to do that. You can essentially, a deer is so curious, you literally can just break a branch, you can make a, a scrape on the ground, and they're going to come check it out. And so I'm glad you guys were talking about that because, uh, you know, that's, that's exactly what I do. I just try to create some type of disturbance uh, that a deer is going to stop at and check it out. Um, now, what about uh, trails, Paul. Now I, I know Cuddyback has always been famous for this, the trigger speed, and so I've had. If if I have a Cuddyback, I always feel confident I can put my camera over a trail and I'm going to get a clear picture of a deer walking by. Now, do you set up on trails often, or are you more focused on these um, the mock scrape areas and licking branches, or do you just sort of break it up? Yeah. So I, I mean, I love working around like uh, rock outcroppings and just steep ridge points that force movement. You know, if you set up a stand below that, um, obviously deer are going to have to work through and around those uh, rock outcroppings and points. And a lot of times, you know, in hill country, there will be logging roads that follow those terrain features as well. So, I mean, obviously logging roads that work around impassable terrain for deer. I mean, those are just can't miss trail camera locations for basically any time out of the year. Um, and obviously really good stand locations too. Uh, mock scrapes. Um, River or creek crossings can be great. Um, obviously, those are usually in low-lying areas. So, I mean, deer, I mean, they really crave that cool summer shade throughout the growing months. So those are, you know, can't miss trail camera locations that I always look for, whether I'm hunting uh, a per by permission farm or, you know, a property that, uh, you know, is public or whether it's my private um, farm that I hunt back home. So, Paul, you talk about your locations, uh, mock scrape versus trail versus creek crossing, things like that. Um, briefly talk about the difference in your decision-making process between getting a still image versus video. Yeah, I used to run some video. Um, and I, you know, obviously, if, you, if you're running video, you got to make sure you have probably lithium batteries in your camera. 
Um, they're, of course, they're a little bit more expensive and you can learn a lot from video, no doubt. I mean, I've, I've run video over scrapes quite often and it's amazing to see where deer go after they'll make a scrape. You know, we all think that, oh, they're definitely going down this trail after they hit the scrape. And well, you know, that's not always the case. It could be just helter skelter rut going on where a deer, you know, basically jogs or runs up to a scrape, works it for a little bit. And, you know, we don't know, there could be another buck just down the hillside that he's about to take on or that he knows is there. And that's why he's hitting that scrape. And so, yeah, I mean, you can learn a, a crazy amount of things about whitetail behavior from video. So I, I still do some of that. Um, you know, of course I'm up to my neck and cutting link cameras, which is awesome. And that's, uh, you know, we, it's photo only, which is, um, which is awesome still to get all that information, you know, the, the pictures flowing in from every camera um it is pretty pretty hard to beat so i i mainly run photo these days but yeah I, I still keep a select few cameras out there to run video on scrapes um you know a water hole or a, a creek crossing which is just kind of fun to watch deer you know walk through a creek and watch them dip their head down for a drink or stand there and look around just kind of see what they do i you know just for behavior wise you can't beat running trail cameras on video that's for sure yeah, I love it. I try to use video once in a while too, just for that, just to mix it up, right? You want to see a deer working a scrape and that type of thing. Yeah, uh, it's that's, just fun. yeah a pack of coyotes coming through, anything like that is is pretty cool. So, um, you mentioned summer, and so I want to talk about that specifically because my guess is uh, this is what happens to me when I listen to podcasts. By the way, I hear something and I get excited about it, and I want to run out and do it. And so my guess is is that hunters right now are starting to think about this, starting to see bucks in velvet. They want to get their trail cameras out there. They're going to hear this podcast and say, you know what? I need to dust off my cameras. But there are some unique challenges in the summer months in particular that they should be aware of. Uh, extra precautions in the summer to make your life a little easier. What are you doing out there? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the main things that I fell kind of victim to when I was running cameras in the summer when I was a younger hunter that I've kind of learned along the way is, you know, you can really get tricked into thinking that all the bucks on your property in the summer are going to stick around. And that's just, you know, it's typically not the case. I would say that's, you know, the number one thing that I would caution people is just to don't get too high and don't get too low when you're running trail cameras in the summer. It's uh, it's a time where you're just kind of checking out what's, what's moving around, um, getting some inventory. Of course, you know, it's hard to not get excited when you see a, a big buck on camera, but um that's my number one tip is to just kind of take it with a grain of salt. Um, you know, a big buck might move out, but a really nice one might move in after velvet shed. You just, you just don't know. In certain areas I've, um, I've discovered that if I get a buck on camera in the summer, he's more than likely going to stick around. And whether that's because of fall cover, food availability, secluded area away from social stress from other deer, I'm not sure. But I can, I can suspect that those are kind of some of the reasons. And then in other areas where I run summer trail cameras, if I get a really nice buck, I can almost count on him moving and shifting about, you know, mile to a mile and a half away come fall. And actually in 2019, I had pictures of a really nice buck that ended up getting killed by, by the neighbor um, during gun season. And I, I had pictures of him almost every day in the summer. And he, you know, sure enough, <laughs> you know, September 10th or whatever it was, out of there never got another trail camera picture of him but throughout the summer months he was living in this area i bet he lived on 60 acres all summer um so that's kind of my 
tip is to just um, not get too crazy over summer trail cameras. It's just, you know, set some up and get some cool velvet pictures, have fun with it. Um, but once that velvet shed occurs and you're kind of moving into those fall months, then it's time to cast that wide net um, and really start pinning down where you think deer are moving um, throughout the fall months. I have a response to that too. I, when you were, were talking about deer movement, uh, I had an experience in Ohio where this, this, he became a giant buck, but I called him second chance because I had passed him up one year. And this was a deer, and this is talking going back to learning things from trail cameras that you probably would have never learned that never showed up on camera until September. Like they're like at the, at the end of uh, middle end of September, he would show up and it was for three consecutive years. He showed up then and he stuck around all fall and then disappeared and lived somewhere else in the summer. And so that's really cool. And you don't know that without the benefit of having those cameras out there. So that's one thing. The other thing I'll say is, so you took it a different direction. I was thinking like from the practical standpoint of just like vegetation, like that was a thing that I learned the hard way is you put your camera out there in the summer and you go check it and you have 2000 pictures of a, uh, you know, a, a weed or something blown in front of it. But I like where you took it even better because aside from the practical, like you said, the deer you're seeing, the bachelor groups you're catching right now aren't necessarily going to be there whenever it becomes go time. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the number one lesson I've learned with trail cameras, bar none, that some deer just aren't going to be there. But yeah, you're right. In terms of the other, uh, you know, grass blowing or you get a, a branch that sticks down in front of your camera, that's frustrating. So I, you know, taking a weed eater with you when you're setting trail cameras up and, you know, trimming those weeds all the way down to the dirt in the spring, um, that's going to help. But yeah, I mean, things grow fast. I, I had to do that this past weekend, actually. I had to um, cut some grass right in front of my cameras and I can actually, you know, when you log on with cellular cameras, you can turn the day delay off or night delay. And so I, I went in and adjusted some of my cameras that way to just stop using up my data with blowing wind of uh, trees and, and weeds. But yeah, I mean, another thing to look out for is, is ants. I know that's, uh, you know, a big thing with a lot of people. And it, it's kind of funny. It, it seems like ants like trees, certain trees more than others. And we've kind of learned that, you know, working for Cuddyback is, a lot of uh, products do work if you spray around the tree, you know, hot shot kind of makes an anti, you know, an ant, uh, ant killer. And then uh, permethrin or permethrin, um, that works really well. Obviously, you don't want to spray the cameras that can eat away at the electronics. But yeah, I mean, you, you learn lessons like that over the years, right? When you run trail cameras, it's like, well, this spot, the grass grows up like, you know, four feet in like a month. So I got to watch that. Um and yeah, just, just getting them out in those, you know, typical locations where you think deer are going to pass through. I mean, it's not, I mean, trip running trail cameras can be as difficult or as easy as you want to make it. Right. I mean, we think it's this, you know, scientific thing and it's really not, it's, you know, where are deer going to be, where do they like to pass through, you know, no animal out here on earth wants to work any harder for food than they have to. And so I've, you know, I've taken that to kind of, kind of to heart as well as, you know, the corner of a, soybean field button up to the woods is probably going to be a pretty good trail camera spot the corner of a cornfield you know making that 90 degree turn around the woods is going to be a really good spot for a trail camera so you know um, just those really obvious locations can be just as good as that hidden trail that you find you know a mile back in the woods you're taking us right to a good spot here because i was going to ask you about data and so my good friend, the doctor over there, he's a data cruncher. 
Like he's got spreadsheets and he's always looking at the data and he can give me all these stats, which is rather impressive. It makes me feel really lazy because I don't, I'm not, I'm not a data cruncher and we have fun with each other. So I want to ask you a couple of things along these lines, but let's start with this one. Are you a data cruncher? Are you a guy that really crunches the data or are you more sort of like a freewheeler like I am? Like, oh, okay, I got a picture of that bucks in the area. Yeah, I'm a little bit more like you, Nick. Um, I used to kind of, you know, gosh, I've started spreadsheets for trail camera pictures and I just can't do it. I just, you know, I don't want to, you know, the paralysis by analysis thing kind of rings true in this area for me. I just, I don't want to overanalyze it. I want it to be, I want it to be fun. And for me, for whatever reason, you know, crunching spreadsheets and, you know, oh, he showed up on this camera with this wind at this time. And then he showed up on this camera half mile away, you know, what's the connection there? You know, I don't get into that too much. I just, I kind of let trail cameras tell me, okay, this deer's in the area. I know he's here. I've gotten a picture of him on this camera. And maybe, you know, a day later he was over here on the food plot and then he worked back into a bedding area. And I just kind of let that tell me that, okay, he's in the area from there, my spring scouting, my fall scouting, what my eyes have told me throughout deer season. I'm going to let that kind of be my guide. I know where he's probably going to pass through at least a couple times during the rut. And so I'm not a huge, you know, I organize my photos with Google, uh, Google drive. And, you know, I, I create albums for each buck that's up and coming or each buck that we've killed and ones that, you know, we think made it, they're going to be around the next fall. I do all that. I organize the photos well, but, you know, in terms of looking at, wind direction for each specific photo and you know things like that i i I really don't do um you know this past year i killed a a four and a half year old buck that you know he wasn't anything giant in low 120s but just a giant body on him really you know good deer i didn't have a single daylight photo of him i Hmm. i only had seven or eight trail camera pictures of him total i saw i had a uh just after you know 10 15 minutes after shooting light a picture of him on october 27th I saw him with my own eyes on October 29th for like 15 seconds chasing a doe. And then later that night, I got a picture of him on one of my food plots at 2 a.m. And then I killed him 10 a.m. on October 30th. Um, and that night, later on the day and on October 30th, I got cell camera pictures of him on a food plot at 2 a.m., just 80, 90 yards from where I ended up harvesting him. I, I didn't know I had the picture at the time, but, you know, I, I never had a a true daylight photo of that deer. Um, so without hunting and seeing him in person, I would have thought, well, that deer's just not really around the area. But since I saw him in person chasing a doe a couple nights before I killed him, um, that told me that, Hey, there's a hot doe in the area. I kind of know where he's going to be. So I'm going to sit this stand across the ridge, um, down below the ridge where it pinches movement down a little bit more and see if he's, him or another buck's going to pass through because clearly the, you know, it goes in heat or very close to it. And sure enough, he came through on a trail and I got him. But without that in-person experience, I, I would have thought he was a ghost or just wasn't really on the property or living near where I was hunting. So uh, trail cameras can, you know, it can be a detriment too. If you're, if you're hunting trail camera photos, that can be frustrating. You know, we all struggle. You know, I, I joke that I sometimes walk outside my parents' house and I'll stare at the ridge and just be like, God, you know, I just don't know where to sit. <laughs> and it can be, 
it can be frustrating because wherever you think you're going to sit, you think a deer is going to be in the, you know, in the spot where you aren't. And sometimes that's true. And that's, you know, that can be a, a downside of running trail cameras, but I try not to make it so serious. I try to have fun with it. And I, you know, I got three young kids and so my opportunities can be limited, but I, I, I try to have fun and try to not make it stressful. And, you know, maybe Mike can uh, crunch those numbers without it seeming like a task but for me it, it just seems too much too uh you know too much to be doing during the fall months <laughs> well i will yield that probably 50 percent of the people i talk to are data crunchers and 50 percent aren't aren't and so because of that i have to yield to the doctor here and let him have the floor for a second so for the data crunchers out there mike what do you got well i will have to say that it, it all depends on your personality exactly if, if you hate you know, crunching numbers. And if you hate looking at moon and wind and temperature and time of year and, you know, which direction the deer came from, et cetera, time of day, it can be very monotonous and it takes a lot of the fun out of it. For me, you'll sit there and you'll actually crunch those numbers year after year after year. And then what happens is this increased tendency reveals itself. And it's that aha moment. And, uh, for me, I don't hunt individual bucks because on my place, I don't have a buck that will stay that handy. I might have one that becomes semi-consistent, but I, I've never gotten day in, day out pictures of, of us of the same deer. So I'm hunting for opportunity. I'm hunting for my best, if I'm going to go out in the woods, my best time to sit in what stand. And that aha moment is just exactly that. So the example I'll give you is that I know that with increased confidence, on November 7th, 8th, or 9th, if I get a north or northwest wind, exactly where the majority of the bucks are going to walk through my place up in New York. So I will be there because it increases my likelihood of seeing a buck and potentially getting a shot at one. Um, the buck that I shot this year on Veterans Day, uh, you know as well as I do. I mean, you were in Delaware, but I'm, I'm like, oh, high pressure day, got a north wind. I said, I'm going into that little cut on that ridge. And sure enough, by 7.30, I mean, every year, and you know, for a fact, man, this was the first year I finally connected, but it took me three years to find the best tree on that ridge. But every year for the past three years, I saw a shooter on that, you know, right in that time frame with that wind, with that high pressure. And so, so I actually like it because it, it lets me get out of the truck and know with, like when I'm walking in, I'm confident. I have that mindset of today's going to be the day I feel good about myself. I'm more focused, uh, I'm more alert on the stand and it just puts me in that, that frame of mind where I think confidence kills and I'm ready for it. And it's, it doesn't ever take me by surprise and, and having that confidence, then that's where I have fun. So I'm walking out with that, you know, that feeling in my stomach, a little bit nervous. I'm excited. You know, that's what I feed off of. So, you know, crunching the numbers might be tedious, you know, put on some music, you know, watch some TV, drink something that you like to drink, whatever, while you're doing it. But when you're walking out, that reward is going to be there where you're walking in stand. If it, if it doesn't happen that day, you're like, well, it didn't happen today. I must have a better chance tomorrow. So it really gives you that confidence going in. I love it. I love it because like it's like in the newspaper, right? You have a newspaper and they always have in the, in the opinion column. There's like the the one for conservatives and the one for liberals. Right. And it's like <laughs> it's the same thing here with with this argument. And I'm laughing because like if I had Matt Ross and Kip Adams on here, 
like they would be going back and forth on this, I think, you know, just in my different conversations with them. And, but, you know, some, some key things there, I think that Mike said that are important. And I, I agree with him a hundred percent on is that confidence factor. Uh, no matter what the situation is, if you're hunting as a confident hunter, you're just going to do better. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And if, if, if for you, that's crunching the numbers and believing in your approach, then you should do that. And if you're not that kind of person and you're someone that just sort of throws caution to the wind and just says, hey, I'm just glad to be out here, then that's going to work for you too. And so I would say that there is no right or wrong answer. It's just different approaches for different people. But I do want to go back to something you said, Paul. Um, cause I wanted to ask this, cause this is probably my biggest struggle with, with trail cameras. And that is, you said that you store a lot of your images on Google photos. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but in terms of like, do you save them forever? When do you delete them or not delete them? Cause I have trail camera pictures back from like 2009 that I'll probably never look at again. Like, why am I saving those things? What's your approach there? Yeah, no, I'm kind of the same way. I, I tend to keep them. Um, but, you know, I don't tend to keep hundreds and hundreds of pictures from each fall. You know, I'll keep, uh, you know, the really good pictures of, you know, like this past year, I had a really nice tall eight pointer that was, you know, just a really good buck, four year old, I think, um, wouldn't have scored anything spectacular, probably in the one thirties, but just, you know, a good solid buck. And I was for sure that someone was going to kill him during gun season, but nobody did. And I got pictures of him in December and I got, you know, a couple hundred pictures of him from this fall, but I'll, I'll keep a select. 20 to 25 photos of them that I really like and I'll organize those and do a Google drive or a Google photos album. And yeah, I, I tend to keep them just because it's, it's fun to look back on and it's not, uh, you know, as long as it's not taking up too much storage, it's fun to look back on those photos and kind of see the historic tendencies of certain deer. And then, uh, you know, into the future to see, you know, what deer kind of takes over that tendency. Right. Like I said, you know, some, some of the mature alpha dog bucks that we have on our property tend to, take over a certain home range and I see that play out from year to year and so it's just really interesting to uh, kind of compare notes from year to year. Well I want to give you a chance to talk specifically about Cuddyback. Uh, you all have been a advertising sponsor and supporter of NDA for a long time which we appreciate and so I want to ask you about that but I want to ask you even more specifically and you can take this wherever you'd like but I want to ask you about the Cuddy Link system which is really innovative and the doctor here he has a Cuddy Link system that he uses and and uh, he and I go out and he shows me how he sets it up and uses it and so tell us a little bit about that and then I'll share with you kind of my unique situation and you tell me if it's a fit all right so you got the floor Absolutely yeah, when I started here at Cutty Back, I mean, I was just like anybody else. I had a variety of brands of cameras, some that are more set for video and some more for just photo. Um, had some cell cameras, and I ended up pretty much, you know, getting rid of all of them. Um, the Cutty Link system is really neat because, you know, if people aren't familiar with it. You you start with a cellular camera, the Cutty Link cell camera, and you can link up to 24, 23 remote cameras to that one cell camera. So you only pay one selfie. Like right now I have, I think 15 cameras out in the woods and I pay just $15 a month and I get photos from all my cameras. Um, I tend to run my delay a little bit longer this time of year. So I'll set a lot of cameras on like a minute. So I'm not using tons of data and I'm, I'm not filling up that 750 photos within the first few months of the billing plan. But that's the advantage is not having, having to require cellular service for every camera that you have. So in my area in the driftless, I have a lot of deep valleys, um, 
and hillsides that are blocked by, you know, cell towers wouldn't reach. And so I don't have to have cell, cell service with all my cameras. As long as you can get a link level from your remote camera to another camera in the network, it'll those photos will find its way back to the home camera, which collects them and then sends them off to your email, to our app, which we just came out with um, online or text message. And so that's the advantage is that, you know, you're saving money and all your cameras don't require self-service. So you're, you know, whether you're, you know, you have 10 cell cameras from a brand and you're paying five, 10 bucks a month for each camera, that's going to add up really quick. And your, uh, you know, your spouse probably isn't going to be too happy with that, with all the other uh, streaming subscriptions and everything these days that, you know, monthly bills can add up quick and trail cameras. I don't think have to be that way. Um, with Cuddy Link, it's, it's just super convenient. And I, you know, I love getting my emails every morning. You can, you can set your report time to a certain time of day. So I have my report, send me an email from anywhere from nine to 10 AM is when I get my report. And when that sends, I can see link level, battery life, um, how many links it has, which that's how many cameras it has to go through in order to get to the home camera. I can, uh, I view my photos during the report as well. You can also make settings changes to every camera in your network. So if you want to change your photo delay from one minute down to 10 seconds, you can just log online and do that to any camera in your network. You can clear an SD card uh, right from online. Um, you know, it's just the wealth of knowledge that it gives me is just, it's crazy. It, it, it's, it almost seems too good to be true. And, and when you start running it, it's, uh, it's really something else. You know, we, we talk a lot about, uh, you know, battery life with the Cuddy Link system. So um, it's a good idea to have a backup battery source on every camera. If Mike, I don't know if you've uh, had experience with the 6D external packs that we have or solar panels, which are awesome. Um, we have a new solar panel coming out this summer that's going to have uh, two internal batteries in it. And so it's going to work in ambient light and shade situations, which is going to be a game changer for a lot of people. Um, you know, you, a lot of times you set cameras up and yeah, they'll go four or five months and then, you know, you got to go change batteries. And the whole point of the system is to not booger anything up in your woods. And so that new solar panel that's going to work in shaded situations is going to be a game changer. Um, there's just so many things you can do with the Cuddy Link system. You can, um, you know, like I said, have 23 cameras on one network. Uh, if your property is really large, you can have one network where you set the home camera as an SD card camera where you just pull one SD card from that home camera. You can run a separate network where you do cellular. And so that network, obviously you wouldn't have to go out and touch anything. So there's just the combination of possibilities is pretty cool. Go ahead, doctor. Tell us about your customer experience. Well, I will have to say, I mean, I'm very pleased with it up to this point. I don't have 15. I have four cameras and I have, not the, I don't have the cell unit yet or the cell camera yet. I still have the old school home unit. And what the home unit is, is it's basically, uh, as Paul was saying, it is my warehousing S like like massive, like 32 gig um, SD card that collects all the images for my camera. Now, the cool thing is for me is I just have that home unit tucked away on the porch of my camp. And so when I come cruising in in the fall from Pennsylvania to New York, I'll just pick up that home unit, pop the card out, walk inside and sit down. And I'm actually going through all of my pictures that evening to come up with a plan for that weekend or that next day. So um, 
I will have to say, and, and Paul, please forgive me. And if we need to like edit this out, we can. But basically what I did find out though is with that home unit, I hooked up a spy point cell link to the home unit and it actually sent me my pictures that way. So I still kind of redneck that uh, right now until I can get you know, until I can get my Cuddyback cellular unit, a home unit that way. But um, wow. I'm very pleased. And truthfully, the the battery life, even without now, again, the, the solar panel sounds ridiculously interesting, especially in some low ambient light, but I can put um, batteries in, in the first of September and they will last me through the rut. They'll last me into like the first week, second week in December on just one set of batteries. So uh, I'm pleased with it personally. That's and awesome. those aren't lithium. Those are alkaline yeah. batteries. I mean, I didn't, use, I didn't even put lithium batteries in it. So alkaline batteries, first of September into that first or second week in December. That's great. So let's switch gears here. Oh, let me tell you that you you sort of described my situation, Paul, and I think I told you about this at the ATA show. I have the upper half of my property gets great cell service. The lower half of my property gets zero cell service. And I'm in a mountainous region where my property is. And so it seems to me like if I put a few units down in the lower area and they can see my the ones in the upper area, I'm going to be in good shape there. Yeah, you're going to be in really good shape. And, you know, it's I find it pretty rare working with customers and dealers that, you know, I mean, there are properties out there that don't have any cell service. I mean, they exist for sure. But it's, you know, gosh, with, you know, towers going up everywhere, it's pretty rare that somebody doesn't have a little bit of service on their property where they could find room for a cell camera. And then, like you said, bury those remote cameras down in areas you don't want to touch. And so I make sure I have external battery packs on all those cameras and it's going to get me from June all the way through the rot and gun season and probably into January. Um so yeah, it, it's rare where somebody doesn't have a little bit of service that they could fit a camera, but it, it happens. But yeah, I mean, it sounds like a great situation for what you're looking for. I mean, and I'll say this too, you know, Mike, you're kind of looking to get into the Cuddy Link Cell side of things. And you know, what I think is cool about Cuddy Link Cell is I can pretty much tell you, I look at the weather forecast and then I kind of see what might be a good hunting day or a, you know, what I call a good trail camera day, right? So I see, okay, Tuesday, you know, the bottom's going to fall out. The pressure's going to rise. I'm betting that I'm going to get a lot of good pictures on Tuesday. And sure enough, I'll get a lot of good pictures sent to my email. And it's, you know, I think that's something, you know, that you can really learn from trail cameras is the flow of deer movement and predicting those really good weather days. And the, the trail camera photos just confirm that. So I think that's one of the main benefits from running uh, cellular. See? Paul does crunch numbers just for everyone that's listening there. He's developing trends in his mind. He's not doing I spreadsheets. I, yeah, keep it right up here. Yeah. No. Very good. Hey, I gotta I want to ask you this because it's been in the news and maybe we'll kind of end it here. It's been great discussion. I think people can take a lot from it. Um it's it's gonna be a two-part question, actually. We'll try to squeeze this in here. The first one is, what do you think the future is with cameras? Like if we reach the pinnacle, is, is, is it pretty much as good as it's gonna, is it's gonna get right now? That's the first question. And the second part of that is, even if it's not, even if there's a, a higher ceiling that we can get to, I wanna ask you this because we've had a, a few states ban trail cameras. And so a, a lot of the reason that these are Western states and in Arizona in particular, it's largely because 
people are putting 100 cameras over one watering hole. It's causing fights. It's disrupting wildlife. And so it's for good reason. It's just a different environment there. But then in other states, it's come up in Utah, and they sort of cite similar things. But then it, then all of a sudden, this ethics question starts creeping into the conversation, and it's sort of unclear why they're really doing it. And then now I'm seeing broader discussion about the ethics of trail camera use, and especially cellular trail camera use, come up in conversation. So first part, have we reached the pinnacle of the technology? And then beyond that, just your thoughts about the ethics of using these things. Yeah, the first question, um, and it's a good one. I, it's tough to know because, right, as soon as we think we've come out with the latest and greatest thing, uh, you know, we see companies like Apple and whoever coming out with crazy products. And I, I think that's, I think that's going to happen in the trail camera industry, industry too. I mean, Mark Cuddy back when he started Cuddy Link, I mean, it was, it was earth shattering. Nobody had come out with anything like it before. And I think, I don't know where it goes from here. But I think there's always room for improvement for sure. I don't think we've reached the pinnacle at all. Um, I don't know what that new technology looks like, though. I, I, I can't predict it, but I, I just got to imagine there's something else out there, whether it's live stream or something like that, which has already kind of hit the market. But whether that gets perfected, I don't know. Um, you know, in your, the second part of your question there with the trail camera bands and stuff like that out west. Um, yeah, it's sad to see because a lot of people just enjoy using trail cameras on their private property for a lot of other reasons. And, you know, as far as I've understood the law, I think you still can use trail cameras for surveillance, just not for hunting purposes. I think a lot of, uh, I think you might've mentioned it, the ban surrounding trail cameras has had to do with water holes and pressuring certain areas of public lands out West that really bring a lot of stress upon the deer. Um, so I think it's, you know, east to the east and west of the Mississippi, those are two very different areas of the U.S., right? Not only in topography, but in, in whitetail herds, whether deer herds in general, whether it's mule deer, elk, antelope versus, you know, in the eastern part of the U.S., pretty much just uh, just whitetail. But, you know, I think I think there'd be a, you know, we've seen a lot of protests in the last couple of years in America. Right. And I think a lot of hunters would hit to the streets and protest if there was uh to be a trail camera ban in the Midwest and in the East. I mean, that's, you know, the Midwest and the Eastern States is obviously where most of the whitetail hunters are from anyway, but yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. I just, I think there's, there's too many institutions and research projects and governments that are using cameras that I, I just, I can't foresee that happening. And, you know, I think hunting would, uh, would take a, a deep, deep dive in the, the economic impact of that would be beyond just people not buying trail cameras. I mean, I think a lot of hunters would say, well, if I can't use trail cameras, I'm not going to hunt. So I don't foresee that happening, not to say it couldn't, but um, I think a lot of things would, uh, would go wrong in the hunting industry and uh, hunting tradition if that were to happen. Yeah, I, I hear you on that. I know that I enjoy a lot of aspects of trail cameras, let alone the hunting part. Uh, I can't say that I've taken a single deer that I took because of a trail camera, but I was made aware of certain deer and I was able to help make a better choice of what I wanted to, to chase because of what I saw on cameras. But uh, I would actually, I would argue, Mike, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I'm probably actually a worse than worse instinctual hunter because of cameras, because of something you said earlier, and that is you want to chase pictures. And I've gotten fallen victim to that a little bit as well. And so 
uh, yeah, but uh, I appreciate your answer there. Uh, Mike, how about you? But I will say for you, you make that work though. I mean, I've, I've hunted with you for years now and in the way that you're constantly moving cameras and manipulating and getting your own kind of data in your head and your hunting style of reactivity does work for you. So, you know, like you said, you've got to, you got to be happy with what, uh, how, what you're doing, how you're doing it, just as long as it's legal. Um, Paul, I will say, here's my suggestions for you. And if it comes out, like I will take royalties or at least, you know, some kind of, you know, like verbal recognition, but for future of the cameras, I'm telling you, like, it should be like, like biometrics. Like you got to put your thumb on there before you touch it. If you don't like a siren goes like all mine's about like theft, camera theft. So it's like, you know, like that one or like live, like voice, like, you know, like it trips on. And if some, you know, whack job is there about to grab your camera, you can come on with your phone and say, don't touch this. Or, you know, I'm going to like, you know, spray mace in your face that you know like a little mace thing or something in there like i mean that's extreme but darn it i mean camera theft is a big deal like i mean i luckily knock on wood like stuff i've never had one stolen but i haven't had a lot of friends i've had cameras stolen they're expensive but um um yeah yeah that's that's kind of like my little little soapbox off the side but but all in all um i think it's been a really good conversation i mean i kind of you know tongue-in-cheek say about you know like sirens and biometrics and like you know little voice activated spray mace you know window on your camera but who knows where it's going to go in the future yeah the trail camera future is going to be a crazy one and i always say i mean it's arguably the one thing and that has changed hunting the most over the last 20 years i'd say i mean i i can't think of really you know bow technology is making made leaps and bounds obviously but you know i don't think anything has influenced hunting quite like trail cameras um box blinds maybe food plots you know but um no it's an amazing tool and i you know like you said to kind of close my thoughts i think trail cameras really just gives you that confidence um the deer are out there right i mean <laughs> so many hunters have been their eyes have been open to really what's out in the woods over the last 20 years because prior to that i mean we we never really knew, right? Um, you, you thought good deer are around and you see a lot of deer getting killed in certain areas. So you kind of know that, but um, now every landowner in America has access to what's right out their back door. And I think, uh, you know, that can just, that keeps you in the woods. And unfortunately, if you don't have a lot of good deer on your property, it can maybe get you down. But going back to what I said earlier, I think you, the main thing is to just not let trail cameras get you too high or too low. Well, it has been great conversation and I want to make sure people can find you, Paul. So I know on Instagram, you are at uh, P Anir, that's P-A-N-N-E-A-R. And of course, the Cuddyback website is cuddyback.com, C-U-D-D-E-B-A-C-K.com. Anywhere else, Paul? No, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I try to post a few things on Instagram that you can maybe follow along with. I'm doing some timber stand improvement on a property that I hunt on right now and of course, I post some trail camera pictures from time to time, but got to keep most of them under wraps, you know, until I uh, get that hero shot out in the woods. But no, that's uh, those are good ways for people to connect with us. All right. Well, Paul, we certainly appreciate your time. And um, hey, good luck this fall. Thanks so much, guys. Good luck. Mike, as you said, Paul, it inspired you to get the ball rolling on getting cameras out there, getting them ready at least. And I think that our guests are going to feel the same way for me. It's typically the July 4 weekend. And so believe it or not, that is like this weekend. <laughs> so I heard that on the radio as I was coming back from the airport yesterday. And I thought, holy cow, 
it's July 4 weekend. I feel like it was just snowing here five days ago. Yeah, it's, summer's moving along. I mean, I mean it's uh, been, for me, a little bit more hectic because I'm changing jobs. So right now I'm serving two masters, still doing my regular job during the day. And then um, for my new employer, I'm doing all that stuff after work at night. So it doesn't leave a lot of time for my hobbies, but I'm trying to really squeeze it in the best I can. I'm, I'm late to get cutting them this weekend. I'm going to actually create a, a bedding area that I had my eye on and it's going to be 86 degrees, but no matter what, it's got to get done. If it, if it doesn't, my, you know, the overall quality of that area doesn't get any better when you don't do anything. Yeah. We can always make excuses of why not to do work, right? <laughs> Whether busy, caught up doing this or that, but at the end of the day, like you just said, it comes down to, if I don't do it, it doesn't get done. And so it'll be 86 degrees and I'm sure you'll be slugging away out there making it happen. Um, you know, speaking of which, while we're on that quickly, you know, habit, habitat work, I was, I just planted, as you know, cause you were out there with me. I just planted soybeans last week, which, you know, the middle of June is probably a little later than normal to be putting beans in the ground. But again, it was a hot day and I had the beans and I just hadn't gotten there, but if I didn't do it, it wasn't going to get done. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and that's the way everyone's lives are. Uh, the one thing that I want to make sure people understand is that you hear potentially people on podcasts or TV shows that have the availability and opportunity to do it at the perfect time. And it always seems so seamless. I would always say, as you and I have talked about it a ton is always have a plan B and sometimes even have a plan C because normal life, and I'm not disparaging anybody that does that type of thing full time, but for the majority of us, normal life does come with some complications and some unpredictability. And so you just have to roll the punches and enjoy it and don't get so hung up on what somebody else does. You know, I love that you said that because you're actually leading me into something that I want to mention. Um, you don't, you don't have to do it like everybody else does it, right? Whether it's the time, whether it's the equipment or whatever, you, you just sort of do you and do what works best. We put out articles all the time with different ways of doing things. And we never say that this is the only way because there are a lot of ways to do things. And so I'm thinking back to the article or to the video I did on buckwheat. And so this is, this is sort of like an internet troll kind of thing, right? Like people put things comments and things like that. That's like, I think they would never actually say to a person, but for whatever reason, they get behind the computer keyboard and they can, they, they put things out there. And so it was funny as I was looking through the comments from the video and about 5,000 people now have watched that video, which I thought was pretty cool. People are on there basically, basically saying, you know, because I used a disc, like that's all, like, how could you use a disc? We know better. You have to do no-till. You have to do this. You have to do that. And then finally, some other person chimed in and said, well, that's great. Not everybody has a disc and not everybody, you know, has to do it that way. And I, I just sort of laughed as I'm watching this. Um, you know, we'll, as a staff, we'll respond to reasonable, good comments on these things. But some of them, we just don't because we're not going to waste our time. And yes, there are a lot of ways to do things, folks. Um, not everybody has a no-till drill. Not any. Not everybody has a ferminator. Not everybody has a tractor. Some people don't have any of that. They have a secluded spot in the woods, and they can do it like a throw-and-grow situation. Uh, you know, they're out there raking leaves off the ground to get bare soil to plant. You know, they're cutting trees down. You know, with 
they don't have the you know the best chainsaws, but they're out there trying to do it. And so there are a lot of ways to get things done. And just because you do something one way does not mean that uh, someone else has to do it the same way. So uh, y'all listening to this, if you're one of those commenters, get off your high horse. <laughs> uh, this is a game that anybody can play whatever in whatever way works best for them. It looks like you're dying to say something, Mike. Well, a couple of things is that, is, as you well know, I'm one of those people that don't have a lot of implements. My All of my plots, I've, I have several, but they're all small because I don't have a tractor. I don't have a Furminator, as you well know. I actually rented equipment to begin to establish these plots. I'm, there was places where I left stumps in because the energy and effort for me to get them out of the ground was not going to be conducive to, as you said, raking off or, you know, with a leaf blower, blowing them off uh, to expose soil. So I've actually planted using a, a garden rake and I've, well, just the other day when my four wheeler went down, I was using a landscaping rake to actually create furrows for my soybeans to fall in. Then I had to flip the landscaping rake over, cover them. Then I had to walk back through and tamp them down by hand. That was multiple hours of work. I was making it work because of my equipment happened to be down. But the one thing that I would say to everybody is that rather than throwing in your comment to make you feel good about how much you believe you think you know, why don't you offer a, a positive comment in regards to, you know, I see that you're, you're disking there you know, here's, here's a link to this article that might show another option or a, or a video, how a person had to disc to get their fields prepared for one or two or three years, control the weeds or the duff or whatever. And then once that field was more conducive to a no-till drill, they went that direction because a lot of the less expensive no-till drills don't have individual articulating uh, discs and planting planters. So you're going to miss areas anyway. So I will have to say, I like no-till drilling. I do like, you know, soil conservation and you know, promoting soil health because I'm trying to do it at my place with hand tools more than anything else and broadcasting and crimping. But I will tell you that when at the end of the day, once you have a nice flat field, no-till operations work much better. That's why no-till operators hate groundhog holes. So um, find something positive to say versus something negative because there might be someone out there that you can help versus trying to tear somebody down. Well, that's just it. It's like the, the, the thing to just simply say is, man, isn't it awesome that there are so many people out there trying to improve habitat, trying to improve land for deer and other wildlife? <laughs> simple. I mean, let's, Very simple. Yeah. But the, how hard is that? How hard is that? Well, we're never going to get away from Internet trolls and people that know everything. And, you know, there's only one way to do things, that type of thing. I guess uh, it's the it's what makes the world go round. So at any rate, um, yeah, you got me on a soapbox there, but I was just getting having some amusement about that this morning. Uh, hey, I mentioned the NDA board meeting. I just want to throw this in a little bit. Uh, it was a great board meeting, and this is uh, interesting in that we, for the first time since the QDMA and the National Deer Alliance merged to create NDA, it's the first in-person board meeting. So those conversations were more than two years ago, but it's the first time everybody actually got together in person which I got to tell you, Mike, the energy in the room was awesome. And we had almost perfect attendance by board and our executive staff was there. I mean, that was, that was pretty motivating. It was a lot of fun. Well, it sounds like the world is getting back on track for the most part from the pandemic. We're learning how to live in the age of COVID now, but again, it's still, as we well know, it's still raging in certain hot spots. but 
I do feel a certain sense of, I guess, nor I'll use the term new normalcy versus normalcy from pre-pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it definitely. I mean, the airports are full again. And by the way, folks, if you're flying somewhere, uh, you know, I wish you all the best of luck because it is the Wild West right now uh, trying to you know, reach your destination and get home without any hiccups or any changes. And I had just heard from a board member this morning that ended up in three different airports and is now driving home from an airport that they weren't supposed to be landing in. And it's just, I was there, I'd mentioned my Detroit trip a few weeks ago. That happened to me or I'm sorry, it wasn't a Detroit trip. I was coming through Detroit and ended up having to drive home from there. Uh, so just uh, allow for some frustration. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, there was a lot of good energy. It's good to see people again. We have an outstanding board of directors at the National Deer Association and um, are just excited about the future of NDA. We're going into a new strategic plan that's going to plan for the next three years and uh, business is good. So thank you for all your support. And I just wanted to let people know that. Hey, Mike, the B team report. We cannot close out a show without having the B team report. Uh, you said you don't really have much because you have just been pretty much just going to work. So you have not put yourself in a position to make a B team moment. <laughs> and I got to say, I've been doing reasonably well also, but there was one thing, and I didn't even mention this to you. I said that I was planting soybeans. I forgot that my, I left my gas can and my, my uh, machine was just about out of gas when I started that project. So I don't know if you noticed it when you were riding around with me, but I was on fumes finishing up that project and fully expected to run out of gas. I did not know that. I mean, you, you've played it off at least very, very smoothly, but I guess what I will say then on the flip side, of that is you can probably thank me because I was helping you out, you know, picking up rocks and getting things out of the way. And we moved along at a pretty good cliff with uh, two people. So uh, just so everyone else uh, out there hears that uh, I have been helping you know, Mr. Pinizzato quite a bit here. So he owes me a couple trips to New York. And uh, so get ready to have a sore, sore back, my friend, because uh, I'm going to be putting you to work soon. You did at least get some firewood out of the deal, which you had to collect I yourself. Did. I did. <laughs> but you had to do it all yourself while I was riding around. So um, at any rate, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, even if you have machines, there's still handwork. I mean, there's a lot of handwork. Yes. And that doesn't go away. But anyway, that was my B team report. I manage a baseball team. And so we have an ATV to drag the field with. And I had my gas can in there and I thought, oh, I'll just pick this up on the way through to my place. And of course I forgot it. And so I'm sitting there on fumes and if I'd forget it the next time, there won't be any work out there. So uh, anyway, that's my B team report. I'm sure I'll do something much more egregious in time for the next show. Folks, do oh, you have something to say there, doctor? Look like you had something no, to say. I was just gonna say that, you know, I've ordered the fuel and I've actually, ran ran the diagnostics and taken my my utv apart and figured out that uh, i have a clogged fuel injector so i've ordered that and it's on the way and i'll just have to be replacing that once it finally gets here so it'll be good yes. to go for the fall yep which is right around the corner as we've said all right folks let's go ahead and close it at that it's been a great show we hope you enjoyed it i want to thank you for listening and also for your support of the nda it means a lot to us I mentioned all the cool articles and videos and things that we put out there. Become a member, folks. I mean, those things are, you know, a lot of that stuff is, quote, free to you, but it's not really free. There's a cost to producing all that. And so if you've been enjoying it and you haven't joined NDA yet, haven't got involved in a local branch like the doctor and I do, 
I can tell you it's very rewarding and it certainly supports us and it'll be worth your effort. So please consider doing that. And we are still running the promo code podcast. If you go join NDA online, put in a promo code podcast and you'll save $5 on that. So please consider doing that. Happy trail cameras, folks. It's time. Let's start getting them out there. National Deer Association, where we are, united. <laughs>